sometimes I feel like I want to start with silence, which is what I was doing before I hit record. It's like I want to feel or put my toes on the edge of the abyss, of the unknown, of the the well out of which the mysterious emanates. Most of my life I've tried to, my adult life, tried to be a teacher and maybe to a certain extent I've done a good enough job at that. And, and something curious, I think, was happening to me as I was teaching. Every once in a while I'd feel almost like a tap on the shoulder or a, a, a whisper in the ear. And sometimes the whisper was a little alarming, like, you don't know what you're talking about. And, but I don't necessarily mean that in a shaming way, although some healthy shame is important from time to time. And, but it was more like, get, get close to that. Get close to the edge of, of the unknown. And, and maybe following that, give up. Give up teaching or give up your own expertise. And I think I'm mentioning that now because I just got back from Israel. And I haven't been to Israel in two years. And as you know, or you might know, <clears throat> I've been leading trips there ever since I moved there in 2003. Sometimes a lot of trips in, in one year and sometimes just one or two here or there. And of course, because of COVID, I haven't, I haven't been back and and I suppose I do have some expertise in this area. I have a graduate degree, and now I've been leading trips like this for 18 years. And, and for a long time, I've been attracted to the word pilgrimage. That's the way I describe them. It's a pilgrimage. And pilgrimage is an is a ancient um ceremony or ritual you could say i used to call it an ancient discipline but that kind of makes it sound like um i don't know like an exercise routine <laughs> like i'm going to flex this muscle of pilgrimage and get this result and and it's probably more like a ceremony a, a sacred ceremony that's enacted communally individually and communally where you journey somewhere and every spirituality and religion that i know of especially the ancient ones have a form of pilgrimage it's it's a kind of living physical prayer and maybe what's even more important it's to say about it is that one holds a certain kind of prayerful posture in the walking and in the walking toward the unknown and to the mystery and toward the center which has no center that's the the mystical notion i suppose and so I've been describing my, my own trips as a pilgrimage, and, and sometimes 
they are <laughs> like that. And, and other times, at least initially, they were, they were uh, <laughs> more like a, a graduate degree crammed into 10 days. Like, how much information can I dump on people? And do so with enthusiasm. And, and maybe that ha has its place. And, and I spent a long time thinking about these texts and cultural background and language and, and geography and, and wondering what's the thing behind the thing? What's the teaching behind the teaching? What's, what, you know, what's just beneath the surface? And, and I don't regret any of that. I think it's been a really important part of my, my, my own path. And, and I would say that a lot of my teachings were along the lines of, you thought the text said this, but I tell you it says this, you know, kind of in the spirit of Jesus, although in the spirit of graduate school, not Jesus, is the better way of saying it, that you you don't really understand because you don't understand the geography, you don't understand the the background, you understand the language. And, and I'd say in the last 10 years at least, I've started to lose my taste for that. As interesting as it is, I've it hasn't been as tasty to me. And um, you know, oftentimes what you conclude from from that kind of thing, sort of looking behind the curtain of the language or the geography or the cultural background, is like, man, I uh, I really thought it was about something else, <laughs> and I guess I was wrong. And it's fine to feel wrong. The ego needs to be beat up from time to time, but. Um, that's not a pilgrimage. That's not a wandering question. And so I've been pulled more and more, I think, toward the ancient um, hidden um, I don't know what I would call it, the ancient hidden terrain of pilgrimage. And I would say in my last trip, I felt it more than ever, that I was a participant. Not a leader, not a teacher, not an expert, but a participant. I was participating in the thing I was guiding. And, and that was a very unexpected shift. And, and, this is, and it would feel like this. I would get to a spot. First of all, I led a little bit more spontaneously and, um, than, I, than I used to. I mean, I made an itinerary, but I just held it kind of loosely. And, and I would get to a spot and... I would feel drawn into a particular passage or story. And sometimes it would be a particular passage or story that I've done before at a spot, and sometimes it wouldn't be. And, and, and I felt like the text and the question and the land and the environment and the people were affecting me, were changing me. That I was, I was involved in the living prayer that is pilgrimage. And that was a what a gift to be in that kind of place. And I don't even know how I got there. And I, part of me was like, finally, even, even the guide, I, I always hire um, a local guide. And, and this time uh, I hired someone that I've never worked with before. And he's a Palestinian Catholic and uh, which is like a minority among a minority. I mean, they're, they're only, something like 3% of the population in Israel is Christian anyway, and, and an even smaller percentage is Catholic. So um, 
a minority among minorities and and what was a completely unexpected I don't even want to say too much about this because I think I'd have to ask his permission but we were also walking together the two of us talking about our own doubts and questions like having conversations on the side about the conversations that w- that were was unfolding in the group and in and in the present moment and in 2021 and mixed with the ancient text and the stories and religion and history and and language and what a what a surprise to have this like uh, a companion an unexpected companion a fellow pilgrim and and I, I'm gonna say something that's gonna sound very uh, vulnerable and revealing I was actually talking to another friend of mine about this who is a used to be a big mega church pastor like me and um, I was saying that I know this sounds <laughs> this is embarrassing to admit, but in the past, it didn't matter to me all that much who was on my Israel trips or who was in the room when I was talking. And he was saying, "I know, I know what you you're, what you're talking about." You know, it's sort of like I've got my thing. You can come if you want. If you don't want to come, that's cool. But I'm still going to do my thing, as if the thing is about doing my thing, and and. That also evaporated. Maybe it's been it's been evaporating slowly over time, and and suddenly the thing I was most interested in was the group field and the individuals and their questions and comments and curiosities and tears and wonderings and confusion and doubts and and beliefs and and what is in the group field? What is your actual experience of God? What is your actual experience that you're having right now? I mean. How do you feel? What's the wind feel like? And um, that that seemed like that. What else is a pilgrimage than the actual experience that you're actually having? Not not the prepackaged ideas that I'd like to deliver in various locations. And so I was, like I said, I felt more like a uh, a participant and. I'm mentioning all that, I think, because first of all, this this trip had a had a kind of profound effect on me, and and also it was strange to be in Israel again. And we were there just as COVID restrictions were easing, so there were very few tourists around. And I haven't been to Israel and, except back in the in, during the second Antifada, two thousand three, to when I don't know when it ended exactly, but it started a little bit before that. The year 2000, it was going strongly when I when I moved there, and tourism was way, way, way down, and so sites were were empty. But they were empty in a different way because of COVID, and and even the churches were empty. And and I had an experience in in the Holy Sepulcher. This is the the tomb that commemorates both the death and resurrection of of Jesus, and it's right in the heart of the old city of Jerusalem. And I've been there, you know, who knows how many times, hundreds of times at this point, and. I happened to, to, to take the group in there when there was a, a Franciscan ritual going on where they go into the tomb, they shake some incense, they say some prayers and, and then, and then they come out and then an Armenian person goes in there and almost cleanses the, the site with their incense. And then, a, then, a, then an Orthodox, um, Greek Orthodox priest goes in and cleanses the, the holy spot, the, the tomb that is the place that commemorates the tomb and, shake the incense and and 
it was like a feeling. There were very few people in there, but it was a feeling of, oh, this was this was going on when no one was around, which is interesting in and of itself and um, like strange. Like this ancient ritual goes on and on and on and on and on. And, and it's going on in a place that to a certain extent, commemorates emptiness. The tomb is empty, so to speak, and, and the space is empty in there. I mean, there's a stone and there, you know, some objects around, but it's empty. And I started thinking about a bit about what's called the status quo. The, the, I won't go into the whole history of the status quo. It actually, believe it or not, started with a, a war in Ukraine and, um, and in the late, you know, in the 1700s. And in the 1800s, the status quo was reaffirmed. And, and it was a way of saying, whatever's happening up to this point in the holy sites in Jerusalem, let's put a freeze on it. No more changes unless all parties agree because the Holy Sepulcher is a site that's shared by, you know, six different um, expressions of global Christianity and how are those people supposed to get along and what if so-and-so wants to make a different mosaic? Well, they just put a freeze. So it's frozen in time. And there's actually something kind of mysterious about the freezing of things. Like maybe that's what religion needs right now is a massive timeout. And, and also, I, I think, but besides the, sort of the timeout feel, it's like you start to wonder, why are we doing these things? Why are they frozen on this level and, and fixed in these forms? And where's the life? Where's the vitality in, in the timeout here? And... And it's funny because uh, some of my my friends in Israel were telling me what what COVID was like, and and unlike the states, it was much more restrictive. Israel's a much more um, I, man. I so res- want to resist using political terms right now that are so um, contentious, but it's much more like a, a socialized. It's much more like socialism, kind of democratic socialism, and. So the government has a lot more say in people's lives. And you, for example, you can't own land in Israel. The government owns the land. You basically lease the land, even if you, quote, own a house. So that kind of thing. And I'm not saying good or bad at this point. But the restrictions were much more intense. And and my, some of my Christian friends were saying it was strange because one of the... Um, one of the things about living in Israel, like my friend is a pastor, is that you constantly have people coming and and visitors and 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 students and um, people who are who are in the land studying for a time and and this kind of thing and and and, and groups coming through. Others said tourists, but and and you're sort of constantly reminded, oh, this is a special place. This is a special place, and suddenly like that sort of evaporated. It's just a place on earth, and it's annoying and restrictive and and hard to move around and you have to ask permission to do this or that and you're sort of locked up and and the specialness just sort of left the room and and it reminded me of the emptiness of of the tomb like the specialness of imagine doing a ritual day in and day out um maybe maybe the monks were kind of relieved that there was nobody there but just nothing 
And it, and it, and it awakens the, the question of the death of God, really. Where has God gone? And the last three talks that I've given, you know, public talks, two of them at C3 and one of them at Eastlake, you can check them and you can find them on YouTube if you want. C3WestMichigan.org and Eastlake Community Church and out in um, the suburbs of Seattle have been kind of hovering around this theme. And in some ways, I, I, my talk is going to be hovering around this theme, the absence of God. In fact, um, I think this will be a contribution to my series on ancient compost because I want to start with a biblical text here about the absence of God and <laughs> the, the disappearance of God or the emptiness of God or the abyss of God. And ancient compost is the, the I sort of had this idea that from time to time I'm going to look at some ancient texts and most of, them, most of my expertise, of course, in the Bible or, or texts related to that time period. And, and so, yeah, let's, let's, let's start there. And I, for one, think these ancient voices echoing down the canyons of time we need right now. I don't think we need them in um, like, give me that old time religion sense, which is a song we used to sing as kids and, or a song that was sung in our presence, maybe. Um, like, let's just do it the way that we've always done. That's not what I mean. I mean the, these ancient voices of wisdom who, who were shaped by their own experience of the ineffable still are offering invitations that we ought not to be so arrogant to dismiss. So what are the ancient voices still echoing? Um, what are they saying as we get... Um, the edges of the echo coming down the canyon. And so I happen to think we need voices of wisdom right now. So anyway, that's what my series Ancient Compost is, is trying to uh, dance with. And compost, I, love, I just love the image of it. It's like, yeah, things are decomposing. And I think about the Bible that way. Some things are going away. And, and yet in the, in the breaking down, that's where the life is. That's where the nutrients are. And I think all sacred texts are like a compost pile right now in the modern world. And, and there are nutrients in there, and we need the, those nutrients to mix in with the complexities that we face now. The depleted soil of the modern era, the, the soil that we've tried to strip mine of everything sacred. Yeah, so we need compost. So that's, that's my, um, where I'm coming from with, with some of this stuff. And, and, if you made it this far, I'm going to make a little promise. I've been so really moved by the support that I've had on Patreon. And not only has it helped support the podcast, I mean, it's just given me encouragement that a podcast that I barely make, you know, once a month, once every, you know, sometimes twice a month, people say, we like this and we're willing to support you in this. And I, I'm just really, really grateful. And I don't know, it's like, I've gotten to the point where I realize, oh, this isn't going away. Like people continue to support me. And so I want to up my contributions here. I want to respond in kind. And so I'm going to be making more podcasts more frequently. I'm going to, and I hope that doesn't thin them out. Um, maybe it will have the opposite effect, but so I'm going to be putting out more of them. And some of them will be like the ancient compost contributions and others will just some will be interviews, like I do occasionally, very rarely, and some will be just musings on, 
you know, whatever. And my, of course, my Patreon supporters give me ideas. So Patreon is a site where there can be some interaction. And so sometimes I'll get ideas and questions coming from Patreon, or sometimes people just send me an email and I'll get some ideas. So I do feel like it's a bit of a, an unfolding conversation, even though you're listening to my voice right now, where whatever it is that you're doing, like, who knows? Driving, <laughs> cleaning the toilet. My favorite <laughs> way of doing doing housework, podcasts. So anyway, okay. The title, I think, is going to be Ancient Compost in the Absence of God, this particular well, contribution here today. And um, yeah, so I want to hover around these themes, and uh, maybe that's enough of a, a pretty long intro, and it's time to just get right into the text. Okay, so where to start here? I want to first make a, an observation that gods in the ancient world were geographical. They lived places. The gods of Egypt lived in Egypt. The gods of Mesopotamia lived in Mesopotamia. The gods of Canaan lived in Canaan. Yahweh lived among his people. And a temple, really, is too fancy of a word. The, the correct word, it's the same word in, he, in, in Hebrew, actually. The correct word is, is house. That the God lives in a house or in a tent or a house um, among, among his people and, and takes up residence in the mountains or in the ocean or wherever the God happens to live. If you're thrown into the sea in the ancient world, you're thrown into Poseidon. You're not thrown into the place that Poseidon rules. You're in Poseidon. And, and this was part of, um, I guess, part of the ancient mindset. World, I was going to say worldview, but that's kind of too fancy. It's almost like uh, the ancient consciousness. And, and I think we can still feel the same consciousness. We still have access to the same consciousness, even though we're, you know, we're products of the modern era and technology and and all that and and all that stuff. By saying something simple, that certain places have a vibe. Certain places have a vibe, and and to what do we attribute the vibe of a place? Well, the, in the ancient mind and the ancient consciousness, it was. Part of the answer to that was the presence of the God, the presence of the gods. And, and, uh, and Israel is no exception to that. The, the ancient people of Israel is no, no exception. They, Yahweh also was, was their God, the God of the desert when they were in the desert, and then eventually the God who dwelled in the mountains with them in places like Jerusalem and, and, uh, and, and even in very specific places like a place called Mount Zion, which is really a small hill among the, the spine of mountains that runs from the south in the Negev desert uh, north to Galilee. So just somewhere in that spine is a little spot called Jerusalem, and inside, inside that is an even smaller hill, lower hill, called Zion. And, and it was believed and felt, I think, that the God lives here. Now, they're not stupid people. I mean, there also was a, an idea that 
the gods had some autonomy and they weren't fixed in a location always, but, um, but geography mattered is partly what I'm saying. And, and the way to understand the story I want to look at is first to begin with the question, where does God live and where does the sacred take up residence? And if we go there, what do we experience when we go into the place where God supposedly lives? And can we get close to that? And how close can we get to that? And how sacred of an experience are we actually having the closer we get to the center, which has no center? <laughs> those are, those are um, I, that, that actually opens a field, which I would say is part of a, a universal human longing for the divine, for the transcendent, for the mysterious, for the numinous, for the ineffable, for the mystery. It's a craving, it's a hunger, and, and I'm willing to go on pilgrimage to, to have that hunger satiated even for a moment, even for a taste, even for a tiny <laughs> cracker and a little bit of wine, you know, that the pilgrimage of mass going somewhere, hoping to consume or to taste or to be present with the divine, with, with God. So... What's interesting about the, the history of Israel is that the idea of a united kingdom, which unites all 12 tribes, was a tiny blip on the radar of, of ancient Israelite history. And it started with David, but late into, this is King David, um, late into his career, he unites the kingdom. And part of how he does that is by conquering a neutral city called Jerusalem. When I say neutral, it was not held by any of the, the tribes, the 12 tribes of Israel. It was held by a people group called the Jebusites, Canaanites. And, and David conquers it. He's a warrior kind of king and uh, sets up shop there and builds his own uh, house, like his um, whatever place of residence, and promises to build a temple. He's sort of told by God, you can't do it. You've got too much blood on your hands, but your son can build a temple. So he buys the land from a, from a man there, Aram or something like that. He's, he's named in the Bible. And that's like the future site. And that's very interesting. That's a, that's a religion and politics, of course, are virtually the same in the ancient world or they, they, they're at least two sides of the same coin, and, and it's a political and religious move to conquer a neutral city and say, now this is the capital, because nobody really has a stake in it. Uh, none of the 12 tribes can say, well, we were here, so it's really ours, and we're more important than others, and so forth and so on. It's just, no, it's a neutral site, and it's a great place to set up the capital, and it roughly, roughly speaking, sits between the southern part of the, the kingdom of of Israel, of ancient Israel, and the northern parts. So it has some it, like strategic advantages in drawing people to it. And that's what you want, because if you build a temple, it's a political, religious, and economic centerpiece. And in Judaism, you have three pilgrim festivals. So you're expected, according to the Torah, to come up three times a year. I suppose if you can, not everybody can afford that kind of thing, of course. Pilgrimage, um, Sometimes it was a once-in-a-lifetime thing for many people. And even I think about Israel, I feel very privileged that I've been there many, many times. And, and, but for many people, that's 
you know, that too is out of reach. So, um, but, but the, but the seed is planted in the Torah that that's where you're supposed to go. And, and, and it's never mentioned in the Torah what that place is going to be. But when David says, this is it, this is going to be the capital, the temple will be built here, the ark will be brought here, and the ark is brought, the ark of the covenant, which is the sacred object for the, the people of Israel, it's brought to Jerusalem, David dances before it and so forth. And it's sort of saying, this is going to be our center. This is where God dwells. And and then some legends were also added to that. There's the story of Abraham sacrificing Isaac, or nearly sacrificing Isaac. It says he, he took Isaac to the region of Moriah, and, and the later interpreter said the region of Moriah, Mount Moriah, is Jerusalem. Even though it's, that's not really stated in the text explicitly, it doesn't matter. It's, it adds to the, um, to the mythic and symbolic um, roots of the place, and it, it adds to its mystique, you could say. So Solomon, um, David's son, is the one that builds the temple, and, and he also builds his own palace and builds up, fortifies some cities and makes a lot of political alliances. He's very strategic, but he's also quite cruel. And he uses what the Bible calls conscripted labor to build his palace, the walls of Jerusalem, and the temple. That's a not-so-polite way of saying slave labor. And who are the slaves? The people of Israel. And that really looked like this. The kings, uh, the people who work for the king can knock on your door and say, how many sons do you have? And you might say, well, I've got three. And, and the king say, well, uh, you know, let me look at them. Okay, I'll take two. And they fall into conscripted or slave labor. They're not paid for it. And and imagine what it was like to be an ancient Israelite and to be enslaved by your own king when three times a year you have a pilgrim festival where you're supposed to go up to this house to celebrate liberation from slavery. So Passover, Shavuot, and Sukkot, those are the three main pilgrim festivals, all have the Exodus story as their backdrop. And the Exodus story is a story of liberation. It's not a story of enslavement. It's a story of being liberated from, from slavery. And it's a story about many other things, a very rich and uh, story that deserves its own um, continual commentary. Uh, wrestling match and as has been happening for centuries anyway uh this creates tremendous tension so as soon as solomon dies the kingdom splits which is what happens a lot you know it's like <laughs> how many businesses have been handed off to the sons only to have things fall apart you know well that's kind of what happens here and so the the empire is divided between Rehoboam and Jeroboam, these are the, the two leaders. So one is the ruler of the, the southern kingdom, the other is the ruler of the northern kingdom. And, and this is the part of the story I want to pick up on from the book of Kings. The king in the north, I think, is uh, Jeroboam. And the, uh, the king of the south is Rehoboam. I'm thinking I'm getting the names correctly. It's, one of the cool things that happened on this trip, I also got to lead it with my friend, Michael Hidalgo, uh, who's, this is now, I, that was, I think, is his third trip um, with me, and bringing people from his church, Denver Community Church in, uh, well, in, in Denver, <laughs> obviously. Um, and we're close friends. We've been friends since the sixth grade, and, and it's so amazing to kind of co-lead something like that, because he, you know, Michael has all kinds of his own 
um, ideas and insights and what he's drawn to with certain texts. And it's uh, just been amazing to share. But I had this feeling like I was going to go to some old places that I've never been to, or he's never been to, and I haven't been to in a long, long time. And so I went to Dan, which is a city in the north of Israel, which uh, I hadn't been to in a long time, because whatever, I just feel like going other places. So I went to Dan, and and the story that I'm about to read is is in part about Dan. So I opened up and said, let's look at this ancient story. I want to read to you a bit about what happens here. So then Jeroboam fortified Shechem. This is a city on the southern edge of, of his... Um, whatever his kingdom, in the hill country of Ephraim and lived there. And from there he went out and built out Peniel. Jeroboam thought to himself, the kingdom will now likely revert to the house of David. He's saying, my kingdom, even though I'm ruling the 10 northern tribes, are going to go after the house of David because David has already become this like larger than life icon. If these people go up to offer sacrifices at the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem, again, built by Solomon, his son, David's son, they will again give their allegiance to their Lord, Rehoboam, king of Judah. And they will kill me and return to King Rehoboam. So he's saying Rehoboam has a huge advantage because he has Jerusalem. And when you come to the question of where does God live? Where do I go on pilgrimage? Where do I walk to the center which has no center? Where where do I taste and experience the sacred? Well, well, Jerusalem had already deeply embedded itself into the consciousness of the Jewish people, and and Jeroboam was saying, that's not good. People are going to go there. So this is what he does. After seeking advice, the king made two golden calves. And you think to yourself, wait a minute. Has he not read the book of Exodus? or maybe he can't read, has he not heard the stories of Exodus where the people come up out of Israel, they go to Mount Sinai, and then they make a golden calf? And then Moses gets mad and a bunch of people die. What is going on here? He said to the people, it is too much for you to go to Jerusalem. In other words, it's really long. (laughs) Here are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of Egypt. One he set up in Bethel, southern end of the kingdom, and the other in Dan, northern end of the kingdom, where I was. And this thing became a sin. The people went as far as Dan to worship there. Very interesting. So he makes two golden calves, one for the southern end of his kingdom and one for the northern, and he sets them up and says, here are your gods. And, And of course, you know, at this time period, people don't have the Bible. No one's referring to even the Torah as the Bible, you know, the sacred book that we all carry around with us. Nobody has a copy of it. Nobody can consult the scriptures. That's for the priests. That's for the scribes. The sacred texts are housed in, in special places in the temple or among the priestly community. They're the keepers of the, of the old stories. And, and so you could say, well, you know, Jeroboam is... is you know, nobody can check up on the golden calf business, so he's going to set up a golden calf. And, and of course, you're going to wonder why a golden calf. And, and the simplest answer is, well, it's an object. And they found many um, small little idols to Baal. Uh, Baal is another, uh, is a Canaanite god. And they're very small, like imagine something like three inches high and, you know, three and a half inches long. That very small. That's more of the image. That's more of the cultural background image 
Um, here, here, I'm now bringing in some expertise. I mean, you're going to need to know a little Hebrew to get this story, so I will be dipping in that in that well as as well. <laughs> so imagine, you know, these two tiny golden calves, and but the language is what's so fascinating here, because what it says in Hebrew is, "Here is Elohim." who brought you out of Egypt. It doesn't say, here are your gods, here are foreign gods, here's the god of the golden calf. And in other words, they're not worshiping foreign deities here. He's saying, and it says directly in Hebrew, this is Elohim who brought you out of Egypt. And the image gives the people something concrete to which to relate to. I mean, isn't that a craving of you, of yours? Like, and I don't mean to step on too many toes here, but when you go into a Christian church and there's an icon of Jesus there um, or a crucifix, it's an object that we associate with the deity. And just seeing it gives us a certain kind of feeling, a kind of residence. It solidifies something. It says, there it is. There's, that's why I came here. And that's sort of what Jeroboam is doing here. This is Elohim who brought you out of Egypt. Here's a concrete object. And are we not concrete creatures? Don't we crave that? You know, um, there, there's the idea of, of the, the <laughs> I just, just abandoned ship here and say something from the, from the world of Jungian analysis for a second. And, but I, I heard um, a Jungian say once about, about the concept of the inner masculine or the inner feminine, often called the anima and the animus. And, and there's this notion that, that deep inside, there can be a marriage between the I and the anima, or the I and the, and the animus, the, the, the sacred um, other. So, you know, typically for, for a man, it's this, this, the marriage of the sacred feminine, and, and they take place in the inner secret chambers of the heart. And, but one time she said, hey, it's all well and good to... Uh, to become into relationship with your sacred feminine, but she won't keep your feet warm at night, you know, which is another way of saying we are concrete human, we're just human beings. And um, yes, of course, the inner and the outer are, are part of a complex landscape, but having a concrete object makes sense to people. This is it. This is Elohim. Now, where did he get this idea? Well, believe it or not, from the book of Exodus. And again, I, you, know, you have to pick on the English translators here. It's almost, they, they want to mask this a little bit because it makes it confusing because Aaron says, give me your gold earrings. This is Moses's brother. Moses is way up on the mountain and the people are saying, whatever happened to that fellow? We don't know. Aaron, priest, make us something. And so he collects everybody's earrings. He makes a little mold and he makes a golden calf and he says the same quote. This is Elohim who brought you out of Egypt. Let's have a festival to the Lord, to Yahweh. Elohim, by the way, means gods. If you're wondering why the heck would they not tell us that, well, because the word is plural. But again, that, that confuses the monotheistic um, Christian interpreters because they don't like that. They don't, they don't like the fact that the book of Genesis begins with the line, Bereshit bara Elohim, in the beginning, God, Elohim, literally translated gods, created the heavens and the earth. It's, it's like saying the one God is plural. And who can explain such a thing? So in order to not make, not to make pastors have to do too much work on Sunday, they say, uh, they translate it as 
well, here are your gods who brought you out of Egypt. And you can say, well, they're worshiping foreign deities. And everyone says, oh, yeah, they shouldn't be doing that. Worshiping idols, they should be going, you know, for the one God. No, they are worshiping Elohim, or Yahweh Elohim is another name for, for the God of the, of the Israelites. And they're doing so in a form that's concrete and recognizable, otherwise known as an idol, a form, an object. So, What is that? What kind of what kind of questions does that raise? What does the ancient compost heap? What nutrients are left in in the soil, in in the in the humus here, in the in the rotting uh, compost pile of this? I think amazing and deeply rich story. Well, it's the question of the concretization of God. <laughs> it's like, excuse me. What is it about the human condition that wants to fix things, wants to pin them down, wants to say, this is Elohim? How many times have you heard the phrase, well, my God would never fill in the blank, you know? Or I used to hear all the time, well, well, the Jesus I serve would never. And there's a kind of like, desire to to locate to pin the deity down here and say all right um you're gonna play by my rules and you're gonna live inside the image that i'm creating for you but it's like the the sophistication of the biblical text and i think of of really the religious consciousness that's coming up out of the hebrew bible well, it's pretty sophisticated, and it's saying something like, okay, you can build a house for God, but in the center of the house, in, in the very holy of holies, there's emptiness. And, um, and, and we're going to put this down on a, on, a, on, a, on a rock. Make no graven image. Whatever you want to say about the divine, um, don't say through image. It... Uh, Yahweh will evade your capacity to see and, and thus to concretize and thus to pin down and say, we have God now. And, and we're going to set God up in a way that makes sense to us. No, there's something of the divine that must remain like the wind, like, like a vapor, like, like emptiness, like the abyss, like, like going in the, the inner chambers of the holy of the Holy of Holies, of the Holy Sepulchre, the tomb. Now I'm switching religions here to Christianity. And, and there's nothing in there except incense, the, the residue of frankincense and, uh, you know, the very, the very thing that, you, that's you, that was used to embalm the body of Jesus, you know, which you just get a faint scent of, but it's not something that you can grab. What, why, why dance with this? Why, why not just say, set up a golden calf and say, this is Elohim. All right, we've got it. We've got the image um, to which we can relate to. It's like the closer you get, the more um, God recedes here. The moment you say, this is it, it's not it. And I think, I think the ancient... Um, Consciousness here, religious consciousness that we still need now, um, is suggesting something like this. 
you have to come to the edge of what's known. You have to put your toes over the edge into the unknown. And as a constant reminder of that, don't make an image out of the divine. And I'm not picking on, you know, Judaism has done a much better job of preserving that, I think, uh, religious intuition here. It's done a better job than Christianity for sure, because we've we've fixed and concretized the image again in the person of Jesus, and uh, for better or worse. I'm, but um, I think something interesting is happening now in in the 21st century, in 2022, as religion begins to wane, as our images seem to lose their power. You know, we used to sing this song all the time when I was a worship leader. It, it kind of made me uncomfortable even as we were doing it. And eventually, I, 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 there was something about, it's very atonement heavy. And for, for a time, that was something I thought was not that important. I, I've, I've changed my mind. It's a very important image. Um, atonement means at one minute. So what else are we craving than at one minute? But anyway, the song was, the blood, the blood will, uh, will never lose its power. And, but even the act of singing it, I could feel that actually, in a sense, it is losing its power. And the more we sing this, it's like the more we kind of bump into the experience of, of wait a minute, like, is this image losing its power? It kind of seems like it is. And, you know, the cultural landscape of, of Jesus in America is like, you know, we've, Jesus is like our boyfriend or our friend or, or our would, votes like we vote. And, and, you know, the might as well, I heard Richard Rohr once say, you might as well wrap in the, in the American flag. And, and yeah, so it's been stripped. Like that, the image is now just a place to put our, our own biases rather than this potent um, symbol um, that's evocative and vital and stirs us. It's become, well, my Jesus. Well, that's what happens when we set up an idol. And that's the place that religion seems to be in. That's the place Christianity seems to be in. And it's a sin, as it's called here in, in the book of Kings, that we all carry. We all sin in this respect. So, okay, I know people don't like the word sin. I was just reading this morning, um, I was reading some Jung, and he was sort of riffing on the word sin, and, and, and he said something that I thought was quite profound. He says, oftentimes in Christianity, we have, the, have this idea that when we're saved or baptized and, and we come up out of a life of sin and we can separate ourselves from it and we live up on this special plane, and, and of course, we know that never works. You know, the moment that someone says, I'm never going to touch fill in the blank again, or I'm going to get as far away from this as I possibly can, then it sits in the basement and rots and eventually comes out of hiding and, you know, this is what what Jung would call the shadow, it's, it, it starts to fester and it will find a way out. So he said something interesting that sin is not something that we get rid of. It's something we learn to live with. We say, yes, I carry this capacity. I carry the capacity for idolatry every day. I want to fix the deity into fill in the blank. Or if, even if you want to, if you feel like you're coming from a more agnostic or atheist point of view, the same impulse for certainty, I'm going to fixate my non-belief in God, be, can become a kind of golden calf that you bow down to. 
And, you, and what are you bowing down to? Your ego's attachments to its own certainties, to the object, even if the object is atheism, so to speak, or the object is humanism and um, whatever, the, whatever the case may be. And, and, and the, com, the ancient compost here that needs to be mixed in with the modern soil says, don't be so sure, don't be so sure that always the deity was just out of reach. Even Moses says, please let me see you. God says, you can't, sorry. You can catch a glimpse of my back, which is funny. But I'm going to have to cover you, and I'm just going to pass by. And even that will be too much. And it was too much. Moses comes down the mountain, and he's glowing. And people have to hide their eyes. And Moses has to wear a veil um, just by... <laughs> being in proximity to the mystery and to the ineffable was too much even for him. So these are all clues and hints that um, part of the invitation to spiritual growth, I think, is to recognize our own capacity to fix the deity and set images. We might call those images today doctrines and creeds. And it's not that those have no place, but but they're not ultimately the thing that brings us to our knees. They're disposable packaging, you know. They're, they're, they're containers that are here today and tomorrow thrown into the fire. And, 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 I, and I guess one of the things that is really worth wrestling with is why... And this is kind of a hard question to even ask, but it's like, why would God, if you want to think about it sort of in a, in a direct way, why would God be so obscure? Why would God hide God's self from humanity? Why would God be out of reach? Um, and I don't think that's a question that I have an answer for, or probably you have an answer for, but it's one that I think um, is worth chewing on, you know? And, and when I think about the state of affairs, the, the state of um, the religious and spiritual landscape in the modern world and all of the, the, the challenges and complexities of, of being a global citizen right now, and, um, you know, part of me wonders if we're... If we, if we haven't, I can only pick on Christianity because it, that, that's more where I'm coming from. If for too long we've set up the idol called the golden calf and we've said, this is Elohim, we, and, we're, and we're damn sure we know what we're talking about. And the moment we do that, God disappears. You know, that's, I got that idea really from, from my buddy uh, Pete Rollins, the God as a magician, as a great disappearing act. It's like the moment we say this, it's not that, and God leaves the room. God exits stage left. It's the death of God. You know, read Nietzsche sometime. I, maybe I'll do a part two down the road and look at this passage where he talks about, about the death of God. I did that in my, my, my Easter talk at, at, uh, C, at C3. <clears throat> but it's the madman that's saying, we have killed God. It's a lament. It's a grief cry. It's not a celebration. It's, it's uh, an exposing that we have blood on our hands. We've set up the golden calf, 
and um, and there's not enough water in the in the world to wash the blood off our hands of the way we've stripped God of all things sacred and um, maybe both by by those of us who say there is no God and by those who say there definitely is a God and I know what I'm talking about. Maybe both extremes. And where's God in all this? And God has left the room again. There's the absence of God. And, and part of what I'm suggesting is something strange, which is maybe the absence of God is the very thing that we need to feel right now. It's like Jesus saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Are we not in that place again? The disappearing act of the divine, the, the abyss, um, the emptiness. Are we not in that sort of place again? And here's, a, and here's where I, I would kind of like to at least try to land the plane here <laughs> because I'm, the more I the more I speak here, the more questions I, I want to raise. But I've been asked recently, quite a few times, if I believe in God, and and this question makes me uncomfortable, and 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 also I feel like I no longer want to hide behind what I ordinarily say, which is belief doesn't matter all that much. Who cares what I believe? And it's not about belief. And you could always follow that statement by, well, then tell me what it's about. You know, and then I watch me squirm, you know? So yeah, it's on the one hand, it's not about belief. You know, people say they believe in all kinds of things and their behavior might communicate the exact opposite. And, and just because you say you believe something, you know, who is the one doing the believing? And are we to trust the, the act of the ego's will that that corresponds to something real and true? Um, we can easily believe in things that are false, you know. My, uh, my buddy Thad, who's a philosophy professor, uh, likes to ask, "Do you think you have false beliefs?" You know, yeah, actually, I do think I have false beliefs. I don't know what they are, but I'm sure I have false beliefs. And so, um, yeah, we, we need maybe Protestant culture in general needs to temper their obsession with with their supposed beliefs. But at the same time, well, then. Do I believe in God or not? And here's a, a kind of answer. I know that I have the desire for God. Th that I know it's a hunger, it's a craving, it's an instinct for the transcendent, the mysterious. Maybe another phrase for God might, might be, what's of ultimate concern? And yes, I believe in that. I, I believe, or I, a better way of saying it, is, is I know that I have this capacity and, it, and, and it's, a, it's a compass in my life. I don't always pay attention to the compass, that's true, but it does point toward things of ultimate concern. And what else could be of ultimate concern than, than God? Or maybe God is the same phrase or word that we equate with things of ultimate concern. And not that I always know what, what is of ultimate concern. In fact, I'm fumbling in the dark. But the drive is there. The instinct is there. The impulse is there. 
it's actually it feels more like unrequited love it's like a love affair it's like or it's a craving or it's a hunger and and my hunger happens to hold hands with doubt in fact i think um doubt and love are are make make good companions here and and even doubt is a kind of is a kind of hunger for for the ineffable for the abyss for the emptiness at the center for the center that has no center and 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 it's like being pulled toward that and and these stories are saying yeah and that's the way it should be it's like we get close to something that we can't ultimately control or name or get right or talk about perfectly or um create just the right kind of creedal statement that explains things those are frail attempts i'm not even against those attempts but they're frail attempts and um so yeah i i um i believe that that this this craving this hunger is a, is a, is an active agent in my own life in my own spiritual path and um and i think we have a tremendous opportunity right now in if we're going to make it to the 22nd century and if something like a new religious consciousness is going to be born that's not a guarantee by the way but i think it's a possibility as all things in the mystery of evolution seem to move from simple to complex so increased levels of complexity if the next expression is going to be born then it's time to grind our idols to dust and drink them which is what Moses says we must do of the golden calf drink up eat up your own sin consume it know that it's part of you um grind it to dust and sit for a moment in the silence in the emptiness in the abyss is terrifying and as an as enlivening uh as it is to be on the edge like that that's i think where we are uh from a psycho spiritual point of view um and let me just add one other piece here and that has to do with the soul and i've offered all kinds of different definitions for the soul and metaphors and images and some of them i i beg and borrow and steal from others like like jung or bill plotkin or or the poets like rumi and rilke and um and and soul is another one of those words like god you know you could say the same thing do you believe in the soul and well it depends on what we're talking about and maybe my belief doesn't matter but here's an in, a kind of intuitive response to the question of soul and sometimes i think about soul as a place and it's the place that knows god i might say and i might even say is it's the place that is known by god the mystery what's of ultimate concern and it's like somewhere in our core rests a place kind of like the holy of holies which is which is a, a place of emptiness and but somewhere in our core in our being there's a place and that place is where we know and are known by the mystery and i would say yes i believe in that and um 
a certain amount of relaxation of the ego and its desperate attempts to be an expert, to be a teacher, to be a guide for me, to be whatever, a, a, a writer or other fantasies I have to be, a, you know, Eddie Vedder and, you know, a, a, um, a rock star, you know, just ego um, clinging, desperate ego clinging for identities. And you fill in the blank of the identities that you're clinging to. It's like a relaxation, a loss of all that stuff. We're stripped of all that stuff. And we're brought closer to the center where there is no center. And somewhere quietly in the inner rooms of the Holy of Holies, in our own inner of Holy of Holies, we taste for a moment the, the taste of knowing and being known. And that's the soul. That's the, it's the place where, where there is a union with with the divine, a, a quiet bridal chamber, a secret bridal chamber. And, and, and I know this place, I've barely, you know, I've had a few hints and guesses after all that's what my podcast is about. And so I don't know what you heard today in my kind of long-winded um, stirring of the cauldron here and maybe it was a word a, a phrase a, an image that captures you in some way but if i can say anything encouraging here at the end is just be if you're feeling the absence of god maybe this is the very thing that is the work of god what else makes the hunger and the craving for for what's ultimate than the absence thereof. It's like God pulls God's self away, which enhances the desire. And there's the, the mysterious uh, love, love affair happening between the soul and God and between who we think we are and the divine. And So if you feel the absence of God, I just wanna say you're not alone. You're not alone. And perhaps it's a product of our age on on the era, the epoch we're living in. And, um, and perhaps that's, that's the very work of mystery itself. Peace.